out here in church today, <laughs> enjoying our time. Glad to have Roland, Belinda back. It's awesome. Good to see you, Erica. Glad to have Christy back again. Good to see you. Welcome back, you regulars. Veronica's chair is fixed and she can come. It's so great. So this is feels a little bit different for me. In beginning my sermon to you today, simply because often when I prep a sermon, I spend hours and hours in a given week looking over the material. And I realized when Jessica was praying for me that it, it, it's, it's not as if I've memorized lines and lines and lines and lines of words this week. This has been a sermon that God has been working on in me for months. And that when I looked at the topic, I went, yes, Lord, I know why I get to talk about this. Because this is something that God has been working on in me for months. And the other thing about this past week, as you've just heard me sharing, is there's been a lot of life in our community life this week. And even in our own family, it's been a very full, very intense week with a lot of need. And it's been a message and a sermon that I just felt that God was speaking to me that it was more important that I spent time living the principle of what this word was talking about than it was that I spend 15 hours preparing 20 pages of notes about this. So for those of you who rely heavily on these things, I apologize, there's no PowerPoint, there's no Prezi, there's no sermon notes. This is what sermon prep looked like this week, me sitting with a pack of colored pens, writing down and drawing pictures of, of all of the good thoughts that was coming out of this book. I sat down two separate times. Gordy Gibosh and I talked probably every day this week, and one day he called me, he said, what are you doing? I said, I am not taking my laundry off the line, and I am not sweeping the floor, I am not doing the dishes. This is my window where I'm doing sermon prep. And it's all about resting in Jesus and resting at the feet of Jesus and not being busy and not trying to do too many things at once. I have to tell you, it made me nuts. I was on the deck, and our laundry rack had fallen down. I had to sit and prepare this sermon with the fallen laundry rack, and I was not allowed to pick up the laundry. All the planters around the edge of the deck, I noticed that the marigolds needed to be deadheaded. It would just take me a second if I just stood up and just picked the dead flowers. I was not in the spirit allowed to stand up and deadhead the flowers. I was not allowed to sweep the floor. I had this window of an hour with me and Jesus and all I could hear was this verse the author of this chapter this book that we've been going through James Brian Smith he talks about this famous story of these two sisters Mary and Martha in the gospel of Luke it's the one place it comes in the bible it's a short little story Luke just documents and says they were on their way to Jerusalem and they stopped at this house. And it was the house of two women. And they were sisters. And one of the sisters was running around getting the meal ready. And the other sister came down and sat at the feet of Jesus while he was teaching. That in and of itself is hugely significant. 
Because Jesus was a rabbi and he was teaching. And in that culture, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis and receive teaching. So the fact that she was allowed to sit and receive the teaching is huge. And not only that, we don't know how many layers of stuff there was to the phrase. I mean, I never thought about that before. What does it mean something else besides teacher, my sister, you know, she's not helping me with the meal. Was that just a complaint or was that also her way of culturally checking in and saying, she's not supposed to be sitting here at your feet. She's supposed to be here in the kitchen helping with the meal. Is everything okay here? I relate to that. I relate to wanting things to be done properly. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a big rule keeper. You know, every now and then I'm cool with breaking a rule, but you know, what's, what's being said? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And he says her name twice, so we know it's gentle, right? Martha, Martha. You're worried about so many things. That word can even be translated ministry. You're worried about so many things in ministering to everybody here. But Mary has found the one thing that really matters, and it will not be taken away from her. And I felt like God was challenging me this week, challenging me. Joanna, Joanna, you're worried about so many things. But what is the one thing that really matters? And interestingly enough, this is what this series that we have been going through, this good and beautiful God series, this chapter, ending chapter of the book is called How to Make a Pickle. And it's the hinge on which we're going to transfer from the first book, which we've been going through, which is all about what we think about God. What are our false ideas or stories? What are our false narratives about what we think about God? And what are Jesus' narratives about who God really is? Because one of the things we talked about back in April at the beginning of the series is that if we're not aware of our stories that we tell ourselves about who God is, that is the God that we'll try and follow. That is the God that we'll believe. And so we've been going through this series of ideas about who God really is, falling in love with the God that Jesus knows. But what we're doing now is we're getting ready to transition into looking at our next book in the series, which is called The Good and Beautiful Life. And it's also based on the idea of narratives. So here's the next book we're going to with a butterfly on the front. So it's also got to do with a story, series of stories, of ideas, of not just what we think about God, but what we think about life. What are our definitions or our parameters for what makes a successful life? What makes a good and beautiful life? And there are a lot of strong ideas and strong stories about this. And so in preparing this chapter, it, it actually is going to be, the sermon today is going to be a, a transition from one to the other. But um, what James Bryan Smith talks about at the beginning of this chapter is the fact that in our North American culture, we are sick with hurry. We are sick with going faster, doing things faster, doing things more quickly. Um, 
hurrying on. And so we're going to start today with just a little exercise. We're going to take a couple minutes, and I want you to look around the church, and I want you to try and find five things that you've never noticed before about the church. There's nothing super spiritual about it. You just have to find five things that you never noticed before about this space when you're ready. Or as many as you can find. Don't feel pressured by the five. You noticed everything. Kenny's like, nothing's new. I've seen every inch of this church. P.S. Has anybody noticed how beautiful the front altar's looking since Kenny's been replacing the front edges here and polishing everything? And thanks, buddy. Okay, somebody give me one. The the clock. You've never noticed that before. See, I look at that clock all the time from up here which is kind of significant to our sermon, but I notice it all the time. I have never noticed before that on the organ, there are little paintings of a dove, like the Holy Spirit, descending down onto a little piece of green land. I've never noticed that before. Somebody else give me another one. You never noticed the two air vents before. Okay, cool. What did you notice? Yeah, the little plaque or the picture there. Yeah, Will made that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, what did you notice? Oh, I noticed it, but I want to know what it is. Yeah, what is that? Shout out to everybody about the lights. See it? The little tube? Oh, yeah. Is that a curve I don't know. I wonder if it's a time capsule. We should ask Dan. I don't know. That's really cool. I've never noticed that before, Kenny. way cooler if it was a time capsule. We should make a time capsule. But that is cool. It's a clamp for putting lights on. Okay, somebody else, something that you've never noticed before. Oh, Dona. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It does look like we're in a boat if you turn it upside down. I love it. What did you notice, Erica? Yeah? Yes, we are all in the ark. Thank goodness. Yes. Rick, what did you notice? Awesome. So that can trigger memory. So Rick says he got in trouble for tossing stuff in air vents like that in his grandma's house in the 70s. Okay, somebody else. What did you, what did you notice, Kim? Two bells. Yes, we do have two bells. 
Yes, yes. And, and one is the, is the morning bell. That's why we don't ring it. We ring the celebratory bell every week, but the other one is only rung on Remembrance Day or at funerals. It's a bell of mourning. Mm-hmm. M-O-U-R, mourning, sadness, yes, yeah. Okay, two more things that nobody's ever noticed before. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wonder if that's an attic up there. I never realized before that the Bible in the window says Holy Bible. I never saw that before. Somebody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that shape is sort of echoed. So this is just a little exercise in stopping and noticing what's around us. And it's something that the author uses, and it's an example of something that he does when he's in a coffee shop with his teenage son. They got there, they had a few minutes ahead of time, and he talks about how if you've been reading in the book and you've been looking at the different soul training exercise, the soul training exercise out of the chapter God is Holy was all about creating margin in your day. And by margin, he means exactly what it sounds like, having some white space around the edges of your life. So trying to to not pack everything one next to the other, because the exercise in that context is that holiness equals wholeness. And in that soul training exercise, the author is trying to get us to to, to look and see at our lives What are our habits, and have we jammed everything so close together in our lives that it's like a whole line of text on a page with no white space? And so he says deliberately, he talks about the idea of making margin in your life before he talks about this chapter, which is all about slowing down and trying to deliberately slow down your pace of life. And he he says, I'm in this coffee shop with my son. My son drinks his soda, and then he says, okay, let's go. Let's go do something else. And one of the things that Jim Smith says is that in a culture that's so consumed with hurry, one of the things that has happened is that boredom is a symptom of hurry and going somewhere all the time. And I heard just a really brilliant commentary on this, actually a a clip that somebody had forwarded me of a comedian whose name is Louis C.K. Now I've been told by people that have watched Louis C.K. that I should not watch Louis C.K. because some of his comedy would not be uplifting to me. So I have not watched his whole act. But I have seen a few different things that he's commented on, and I think he's pretty brilliant as far as social commentary, and he was talking about why he doesn't allow his children to have smartphones or cell phones. And he said, I really believe that what's happening is that we're losing our ability as a culture to wait, to be still, to be in a waiting room and to have to sit and look around, to notice what's going on to not have to constantly be reaching for your phone. And he said, I, was, I had this experience where I was driving down the highway and a Bruce Springsteen song came on. And he said, and Bruce made this noise where he sort of went like, ah, this sort of cry. And he and Conan O'Brien had this little laugh about Bruce Springsteen making this cry. He said, but it stirred something in me. It stirred something in me where I felt lonely. And I felt this loneliness that was a cry that felt like something everybody must experience. And instead of sitting with my loneliness and my grief, I wanted to grab my phone and text 50 people and say hi, just to see if anybody would say hi back. 
And he said, we are losing the ability to sit with our pain, to sit with our loneliness, to sit with that emotion, to feel that all the way through. And what is so interesting about this sickness of hurry, 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 is that the solution to it is counterintuitive. Because I can tell you that in this past season, these few months of my life, when I feel overwhelmed by all the things that I have to do, my human response is to try and find ways to fit it all in. To try and find more ways to manipulate my schedule, to constantly be looking, and particularly our, our schedule is, is unique in our family in that our kids are in schools on, on some days and some days they're not. And right at the beginning of this sabbatical time, we felt that it was important for us to change one of our children's school schedules, which eliminated one of my office days. <laughs> and so I found that I was constantly thinking about the church and the work that I had to do for the church because I was always looking for windows of time to get things done. Even if, in fact, I was working, you know, I'm, I'm paid for 12 hours a week. Even if I worked close to 12 hours a week, it didn't feel that way all the time because I was always constantly thinking about work and constantly thinking of places to fit things in. And my response was I would say to Wade, I just, I just have to find some more time. I just Maybe tomorrow I could do this or maybe I could do that. Thank God who saves us from ourselves. The first thing that happened was that God just said to us, no questions, we had to get to this retreat that we went to in May. And that just saved me and got me off the treadmill. And then the Lord has just been speaking and speaking and speaking this message to me about slowing down, slow down. For those of you who have been in my house, you see I have a, a picture on my fridge that says slowly and majestically that's up there all the time. I have a little magnet that says, slow, go slow, life is in progress. For Lent, the Lord asked me to give up rushing and hurrying. It's something that God has been asking me about for months. The other thing that has happened is that, um, well, wait, I'll, 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 I'll come back to that in a second. But I have a question that I want to ask you that, that Jim Smith asks in this book. He says, what do you think is the correlation between being in a hurry, noticing the things around us, and contentment? What's inverse? Can you elaborate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're in a hurry, you can't notice things. So how does that connect to contentment then? Yeah, okay. So noticing things may have a direct relationship to contentment. So this is something that, yeah, I agree. I think that's where the author's going with that point. I... This is something that has been on my mind, and I think I've even shared it before when I've taught at various times. But, I mean, I know, you guys, I am the, the, the disciple of Ann Voskamp. Every time I talk, I talk about Ann Voskamp. And it's no different today. In her book, 1,000 Gifts, which has just changed my life, she was challenged by a friend to write down three things a day that she was thankful for for a whole year. So three times 365 would make 1,000. 
And what she talks about in this book is how it changed her life based on what you just said, Roland, in that slowing down and deliberately trying to look, not just saying, thank you for my family, thank you for my car, thank you for my health, but, uh, well, I mean, I'll just read to you. One day she's doing the dishes, she's got six kids, she homeschools them, the house was a mess, and she stopped to do the dishes, and she refills the sink And she looks and she notices that on one of the soap bubbles in the sink is a beautiful rainbow. So she's made a habit of keeping a gratitude journal on her kitchen counter. So she writes down number 362 suds. All color in the sun. And then she said, I see my reflection in the stainless of the tap, and I know you, those seeking eyes. You are the one in dire need of time. That thing that we can't buy. That we sell of ourselves to get more of what we think we want and what we sacrifice to seemingly gain. They say that time is money, but that's not true. Time is life. And then she said, and I want the fullest life. That was the scripture that came to mind this morning when I was praying about Kaylee and praying about what has been going on in our church, was John 10.10, where Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep, and those who come in through me will be saved, and they will come and go freely and have safe pastures, and the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, and my purpose is to give them a rich, satisfying life. Other translations say, I have come to give life abundantly. Take that in. Whatever your life looks like this week, and I recognize that it might not have felt rich or satisfying to you this week. That is what Jesus has said that he has come to give. He has come to give a rich, satisfying life. And all kinds of smart people, including James Bryan Smith and Anne Voskamp and other scientists that have nothing to do with Jesus but are just researching how the human brain works, are finding that if we stop and give thanks, it changes our brains. It changes our thought process just by writing down, specifically giving thanks. So, you know, that's why we're looking around and noticing really specific little things. We went last night out to dinner and stopped, and our kids were restless waiting for their food, and I said, okay, somebody give me, tell me five things you've never seen before in this restaurant. This is how I did sermon prep this week, people. Tell me five things that you've never seen before in this restaurant. It was awesome. We all noticed all kinds of different things. So this is what Anne goes on to say. She said, God gives us time, and who has time for God? Which makes no sense, because in Christ, don't we have an everlasting existence? Don't Christians have all the time in eternity? If Christians run out of time, won't we lose our very own existence? If anybody should have time, should it not be us Christ followers who have eternity? She talks about a pastor who she heard from who at the end of his life, he was asked what his biggest regret was in life. And he said, being in a hurry. 
getting to the next thing without fully entering into the thing that was in front of me. I cannot think of a single advantage I have ever gained from being in a hurry, but a thousand broken and missed things, tens of thousands, lie in the wake of all the rushing. Through that haste, I thought that I was making up time, but I was throwing it away. And another author that she quotes said, on every level of life, from housework to the heights of prayer, in judgment and effort and all the hurry to get things done, hurry and impatience are sure marks of the amateur. And Anne Voskamp says, I don't want to be an amateur. And she goes on to say, if nothing is a surprise to God, then nothing is an emergency to God. Because an emergency is an unexpected event that nobody saw coming. Well, God sees everything coming. So nothing in Christ is an emergency to God. Life is not an emergency. It is brief. It is fleeting. But it's not an emergency. In Christ, urgent means slow. Anything that is really worth doing takes time. Like a tiny mustard seed that gets planted in the ground and takes time to grow. Our garden, our kids, our relationships. In Christ, the most urgent necessities necessitates slow and steady reverence, right? A sense of holiness about what we're doing. Time is not running out. Today is not a sieve. We are not losing time. In fact, in Christ, we can have a sense that we're actually gaining time because we are going to live forever. Amen. Say that to yourself. If you haven't thought about that lately, say, I am going to live forever. Seriously, say it out loud to yourself. There's something to that. Please, you can say it quietly if you don't like talking in church, but say it. Say the words so that your body makes them with your mouth. I am going to live forever. Right? You have nothing but time. So, now, I'm preaching to myself because I can tell you that I have been given the gift of a daughter, and she, she and I have talked about this, so I'm not doing any disservices, and I'm not breaking any confidences in this. My beautiful Sophia Joanna Jubilee has a pace of life. The Germans actually have a word. I read a book called In Praise of Slow. Germans have a word. I can't remember what it is. They have a beautiful word for everything that actually means a pace of life that each of us have a rhythm to our life. Sophia was born slow, and Eleanor was born fast. And I find myself tried more by that than anything in my parenting. I am so challenged. Just have lots of notes here, and I'm trying to figure out where the next thing is to go. 
One of the things that Smith talks about No, let me go to where, what Sophia is. Anyway, what, this challenge of parenting Sophia, I am amazed at how many times in a day I am trying to rush her. That I am trying to rush her even without reason even without us even having anywhere to go. And part of that is fueled by when you've been a parent for 10 years, you know the ramifications of how a day is going to roll out. So you know that if you take extra time to do this, this, and this in the morning, or if they don't do their chores now at 10 a.m. when they're fresh, if you ask them to do them later in the afternoon when they come back from swimming, that's going to be a gong show. And you learn things like that. But what Smith talks about and what I've found is that hurry is something that is driven by fear. And the reason why we need to be aware and routed out is because the Bible is clear about the danger of fear. I love one of Gordy's catch, Pastor Gordy's catchphrases is that the Bible says fear not 366 times, one for every day of the year and one extra just in case you forget. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And it's a balance because one of the things that we've talked about with her is that our actions impact other people, that she doesn't live in a house all by herself, that she lives in a house with five other people, that we have to be aware of each other. But Smith gives an example of if you're late and you're trying to catch a plane through the airport, if you're worried and you're hurried, hurry is this, this condition based on fear. Whereas if we can manage in any situation to be walking in step with what God is doing, we're able to be happy and unhurried but focused. You can be focused and you can do things with purpose and you can be aware of time limits and you can respect other people and you can acknowledge time without going in this attitude of fear. But what's been amazing to me is how many times, particularly as a parent, this thing of hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And sometimes I just, like, I'll, I'll stand there and watch her and I'll count. Or I'll, I'll speak to her and say, could you please do such and such a thing? And she says, sure. Yes, mom. And then I'm standing there and she doesn't move. And she doesn't move. And then she'll look over here, and she'll look at something else, and I'll say, are you going to go and do the thing? And she goes, yes. Uh-huh. And then she'll go like this and move a little bit more slowly. And I am not dwelling in happiness and peacefulness with God at all. I am like, oh, for the love! Like, just go! Just move! Like, I just, oh, I just, I have to work so hard I have to work so hard to not lose it.
Fully. Yes. Totally. And Aldona is making a great point for people who are listening online. She's saying, you know, there's times where you, we all live in community. You know, Aldona's saying, I can't handle my kids staring at his shoelaces when I have my whole office waiting for me. Or if you're late and you're not honoring my time. But that's not the, the key point I'm trying to make. It's that um, when we don't have margin in our life, and we're tired, and we're lonely, and we're joyless because we're rushing everywhere. That is a situation that creates temptation more readily in our lives. And we're more open to those sins because of having no room for anything that gives us life. And when we have balance in our lives, and we're restored, that's when we have an increased capacity for joy right? That's when we have an increased capacity to slow down and have a conversation with somebody. And I mean, one of the points that the author makes is he says, back in 1967, futurists predicted that by 1985, people were going to be working 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because we were making so many time-saving factors. And even looking at the history of clocks being developed by monks, right? All of these things were meant to serve us, they were meant to be tools that served us to bless our lives. But what has happened is that the machine has come first and that we've honored and turned ourselves into these machines. We're trying to work and live like machines. And so the lie or the false narrative in all this is that we're only as valuable as what we produce or we're only as valuable as what we can do for our church or for our family or whatever. And that when we're not able to produce, and we're not able to do things, and we're not able to function that way, then we don't have any value anymore, right? This is the, the lie that the world tells us. So it even can happen in church, especially a church like ours, where there's so much, people serve so much, where if we put the church higher than our own self-care, we burn out on this altar of work or church or whatever it is, and our emotional and physical health get sacrificed, and then we don't have anything to show for this amazing sacrifice that we've given. And so it, the reason why the chapter is called How to Make a Pickle is he says good things can't be rushed. And if I'm making a pickle and I take a cucumber and I just baptized my cucumber in the brine, and I dipped it in like that, and then I took it out, you don't have a pickle, you have a baptized cucumber, right? You've got to take the cucumber, and the cucumber's got to soak. I heard somebody say once, we are all about the microwaving, right? We'll stand in front of the microwave and be like, I can't believe that this is going to take two minutes. I don't have two minutes of my time. Is there any way I could cook this faster? You know, God is all about marinating, the good marinade, right? The foodie. And so it's not like we're choosing between drug addiction and serving God, or we're not choosing between witchcraft or serving. We're choosing between multiple good things a lot of the time. We're choosing between good things, and we can't serve God unless we listen to God. If we're going to look at Jesus as our model, he had perfect balance, he was where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. He listened to the Father, and he showed up. When it was time for him to go there, you couldn't, you couldn't hold him back. He would say, no, we got to go. Let's go there right now. 
But if the father said to him, no, stop here at this well and talk to this woman. No, you know what? You don't need to go anywhere for lunch. There's plenty of lunch right here. Everybody sit down and eat. You could not rush the guy because he spent the whole time listening to the father. But we can't serve God unless we take time to listen to God. And I'm preaching to myself here. I mean, the first few weeks of the sabbatical, I was having a hard time finding quiet time. And I just felt like the Lord was like, you're nuts, kiddo. You're doing this so backwards. This is so awesome that you're, you know, great that the church emails on time. Have a seat. <laughs> Listen to me. So what this comes back to with Mary and Martha is that when we sit at the feet of Jesus, that's where we gain strength, right? That's where we get our strength. That's where we get our wisdom to hopefully be a part of this busy world. But we become the people that this crazy, frightened, frazzled world needs. That's one of the biggest things that Gordy has been mentoring me in, is he's just said, the biggest thing that you need to be when you're a pastor is to just do your best to be a non-anxious presence. It's not so much about what you do, which is hard for me, because I'm a doer. I always want to fix everything. How can you make everybody happy all the time? You know, and I know that that's not true, and I'm not trying to work on that, but that's my knee-jerk response, right? That's my initial, the way I'm wired, and God's working on me in that. But when we sit at Jesus' feet, then we can be present to whatever moment that we're in. So let's look around one more time. Look at the people that are here. Look at the building that we're in. We're in a beautiful space, in a peaceful country. We're not in any danger. We're surrounded by people for the most part that we know we're getting to know pretty well. We're pretty good people. That's why I keep coming back here. One of my favorite movies of the last year is a movie that Lynn O'Hara took uh, Jessica and I to see. One night we had women's group. I guess it was last year. And only the three of us showed up and she said, we're all going to the movies. And she'd seen this movie the week before with Mark. And I'm not giving you it, it's 100% Christian approved, whatever. So if you watch this movie, not everything is morally awesome. So please don't be shocked because there's parts of it that are not in line with everything that good Christian living should be. But the key message of this movie is this. It's called About Time. And it's about savoring every day. And the premise of the plot is about um, a man who on his 21st birthday, and I'm not telling you anymore that the TV commercial tells you, so don't worry, I'm not ruining it for you, who on his 21st birthday, his father, who's brilliantly played by Bill Nye, comes to him and says to him, I have something to tell you. All of the men in our family can time travel. But you can't go back and kill Hitler or make love to Helen of Troy. You can only time travel in your own life. And you can go back to any moment that you've lived in your own life and choose to do things differently. And so therein ensues this whole history of events of what happens to this main character when he goes back and make different, make different choices. Everything from pursuing his wife. But what happens as time goes on is he realizes that what his dad has communicated to him all along was that the highest value was being with his children and enjoying his life. And he used his ability to time travel to read every book that he could read and to play more ping pong with his son and go to the beach. And at the end of the movie, they show 
that he has stopped using time travel to change the choices in his life. But if he has a day where he realizes that he hurried through the day, so they show, he's a busy lawyer in England, and they show him going into a sandwich shop, and he gets the sandwich, and he's got his head down, and he doesn't even look, and he says, thank you, and then he runs out, and then his partner, they're super intense, and they have to get to court, and everything is awful, and they're running and running, and they don't look around, and they haven't seen anywhere they're gone, and then there's another scene where they win at the trial, but they're so distracted, they do this and this, and then the next scene, it shows him going back and choosing to travel through the whole day again, but noticing. And then he says, I discovered at the end, I didn't even have to time travel anymore because I learned the secret of life. And they show the scene where instead of having his head down in the sandwich shop, he looks up and looks at the person who's serving him. And she's this beautiful girl with this radiant smile who smiles at him and says, have a great day. And he says, thank you so much. Have a great day, too. And the scene where him and his buddy are running through the courtroom trying to get to court on time with their heads down, he stops his buddy and says, oh, my gosh, look at this building. And they're in this absolutely incredible law court in London. And they stop and they look up at the beautiful building at the top. And he gets home and he has breakfast with his three small children and he looks at all their faces and he gives them breakfast and notices all the bites that they're taking. And um, it shows him in the first scene going to bed with his wife and saying, oh, it was this awful day. And then it shows him the next day and he's gone through and he's had exactly the same day. He doesn't make one choice differently except the choice to look around and notice and be grateful and express gratitude and express gratitude for the people that are around him. The transition to this idea of this good and beautiful life is that the point of the gospel of Christ is to discover a relationship with God where we enjoy God and we enjoy ourselves in Christ. We're not trying to get into heaven. We're trying to get heaven into us. So if we don't look around and notice all the beauty that is there, we're missing all of the heaven that God is giving us right now. Because thankfulness is not only the key to contentment, but it's the key to us reverencing and honoring God and giving God praise. And we can't be thankful and content unless we can develop this art of taking that breath. And it doesn't mean you never move fast. It doesn't mean you never need to move quickly. What it means is that whatever you're doing, you're doing deliberately and without fear. Noticing the people around us. Because if we're not tuned in to God, we want to be God. If we're not turned into worshiping God, we want to be in control of everything. I know I do. That's why I hurry. Because I feel like I can fix everything and I can control everything if I just make enough plans. If I just plan everything. Now, I can tell you that in order for our lives to run well, it runs better when I plan our meals We have a schedule that gets written on the fridge. Yes, I have taken since the start of the sabbatical to color coding things. People look at their thing and they can tell who has to be on which days. But what makes a difference is my heart, right? 
What we've been doing all along is looking at spiritual formation. Well, spiritual formation is character formation, right? Our character, these little things, these little things that matter. So we've been doing these, this combination in this book series so far, right? We've been looking at our own stories. We've been trying to do this in community with each other in different ways. We've been doing these different exercises on different weeks. Some of you have done, you know, it's totally up to you. There's no homework police, but you're being given these orange sheets every week if you want to go through these exercises. But through all those things, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that's moving all of those things so that we're not trying to create this brand new self-help program here, but we are trying to create the conditions, the right conditions in our lives so that the Holy Spirit can can transform our character, right? Openness and understanding who God is. So we're, we're trying to change that climate. But just like our ideas about God, our ideas about life, our dominant ideas about life, that's what dictates our behavior, And that's what justify our outcomes. So there's all kinds of things that our culture thinks about living a good and successful and beautiful life. A big part of that is hurry, right? A big part of that is the more you produce, the more successful you are. The busier you are, the more important you are. If you're very, very busy, you're a very important person. Um, You know, what are some of the narratives of our culture? If you just look at TV commercials or things that you hear on that are in media or things around about what what equals a successful life in our culture. What's what's some of the big narratives? Yeah, money equals success. Fame, never being sad equals success. Yeah, having every gadget, right? If you can have all these gadgets, then you'll be happy, right? If you could stay at this luxury hotel, then this will be happy, right? Like having all, like material possession, right? I have to look out for number one, right? All, all's fair in love and war, right? Put yourself first. Worry about yourself first. This, the author gives some great examples. Rules are made to be broken. Nice guys finish last. And then the, the also narrative is, that, well, if you follow these, these narratives of the church i.e. Jesus narratives about what makes a good and successful life, you're going to have this very boring, constricted, unpleasant life. And this incredibly boring person living this very constricted life following all these rules, never getting to do anything fun, right? Sin equals fun. There was this movie years ago called Pleasantville where it was a black and white town and that when they started to really live, things went in color, but a lot of the really living was when people experimented with sin for the first time. And it was this really interesting concept that was so perverted. It was so perverted. Now, there were, like all good lies, there were some strong elements of truth in the film, but I remember when I had been away from church for a period of time and really had bought into that lie, had bought into the lie that I needed to go and sin to have fun. And I came back to church, and I came back to God, and I remember I went to go after I'd been married to Wade for a year. So I had done a lot of right things in walking with God, but I was still working on this narrative that I believed that following God meant all the stuff I had to give up. 
And one of the things that God spoke to me when he gave me Wade as my husband was, what if I want to bless you? And I had to choose to receive Wade as a blessing, as a good gift from God. And when I came to him and said to him, I think you've messed up here because you're this perfect missionary guy and I'm not. Like my story is really different from yours and I've screwed up and I've sinned. That's what Wade said to me. I know God. You're my perfect gift. You're a good gift. So I was slowly getting it. But we went to Brazil on New Year's Eve to do a mission on the beach at Copacabana. And we were praising Jesus. And we were partying and dancing. And people would come up to us who were drunk out of their heads and spray us with beer and champagne. Now, not one of us drank a drop. We stunk like booze by the time the night was over, but not one person drank a drop. And at one point, my girlfriend, Michelle, came up to me, and I knew that she had had kind of a similar past to what I had. And she had this look on her face. And I just knew how she felt. And I looked at her too and I said, doesn't it make you want a refund? Made me want a refund for every money, every dollar I'd ever spent at the bar. You know, I hung out with musicians so I didn't pay for the drugs that I took. But, you know, I got them for free. I think I bought maybe once. But I wanted a refund for the money that I'd spent pursuing this lie that life with Jesus was going to be boring. I can guarantee you, since I've started following Jesus, if you know me, you know that my life is anything but boring. And, you know, that, that intimacy and sex is, is dry and colorless. I don't want to be too personal, but that's a lie. That is a lie. These narratives about what life following Jesus looks like, that it is restricted. So this is, is where this principle of how we think about God and how we pursue God is hinged from this good and beautiful God to this new series that we're going into about the good and beautiful life. What are our narratives about what makes successful life? And number one, it's just how do we honor God by just taking in with gratitude what it is he's given us. If you start to look, one of the things that this year of thanks, this 1,000 gifts book, is Ambos Camp just says she can't believe when she starts looking how many places there are in scripture where it says, and Jesus then gave thanks, and then da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And she starts to say, thanksgiving always precedes the miracle. He gives thanks before the bread and fish are multiplied. He gives thanks before Lazarus is raised from the dead. He gives thanks before he dies on the cross. He gives thanks. He says, thank you, I thank you, God, for the pain that he was about to bear for us. He gives thanks. And I encourage you to read the beginning of The Good and Beautiful Life because he details, based on Romans chapter 1, verse 18, what sin looks like when we refuse to acknowledge and thank God. 
So when we refuse to acknowledge and thank God in our lives, we, it spirals into sin because there's this progression of us not acknowledging God or wanting to be God or wanting to be control of our own lives. And our minds go dark because we're not focusing on the truth and the reality of who God is. And then we have to have some God, so we worship and pour ourselves into something that's not God because we all worship something. We're made for worship. And God leaves us alone. If you read that verse in Romans, he says he leaves, God left them in their sin. He left them. And so then we just keep pursuing sin and pursuing sin and pursuing sin at all costs. And then that's how sin starts to reign in our lives. And so what we're going to be looking at, could somebody bring me some Kleenex? I should just put Kleenex up here when I preach all the time. When Bob and Anna's daughter Lydia was starting to get to know her husband Vern, and she was saying, oh, my friend Joanna's teaching today. He said, oh, I don't know if I know Joanna. And he said, oh, the lady who cries? Oh, yes, Joanna. Yeah, that's Joanna. So sin is always ugly. Sin is always ugly. When we see somebody sin, I was in science world the other day, and there was a woman in the bathroom who I thought was treating her daughter badly. It just made me so sad. I just went to the little girl. She was washing her hands at the sink. She was very well trained. She never spoke to me. I was a total stranger, but I just said to her, I know how you feel. I can understand that. But in my mind, I was like, stop being so mean to your kid. I don't think the mom thought she was being mean. But anyway... You know, sin always leads to ruin, right? Virtue always leads to strength. Virtue is beautiful. When you see someone who is virtuous and they are living a godly life, it's beautiful. That's why everybody loved Jesus. Atheists love Jesus, right? Everybody loves Jesus. It's his followers that people have problems with, right? But a virtuous person is a light to everybody around them. And what I mean by virtue, it's these... Um, these principles of integrity, right? One of the ways it's described is it's the inner reality of a heart that loves goodness. When your heart loves goodness and you're attracted to goodness. One quote that, they, that um, Smith quotes is by an author named Thomas Merton. And so he said, without virtue, there can be no happiness because virtues are precisely the powers by which we come to acquire happiness. Without virtue in our life, like honesty and integrity and purity, there can be no joy because these virtues are the habits that coordinate all of the outlets for our natural energies and direct them into harmony and perfect balance. So that's where we can find unity in this balance, this rhythm of time, this balance with God and ourselves. And that comes with everlasting peace. And so it's not that this good and beautiful life in Christ is, is going to be us figuring out all these rules that we're going to follow. But it's, we're created by doing these new things and developing these new habits, right? Looking at our minds. He goes on to say that quite often we'll say, God, I want you to give me a life of happiness and joy, but I want you to let me live however I want to live. And C.S. Lewis says, there's no, God can't give us a life of happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. God is joy. God is love. God is peace. It's impossible for us to live a peaceful, happy life away from God. 
So as we head into this, looking at this new book, and we're going to have a time where we talk back a little bit next week and just hear what it's been like so far for you looking at the new book and, and thoughts about heading into the second one. Um, the, the question is not, what do I, what's all the things I have to give up if I'm going to follow Jesus and if I'm going to do this? What's all this thing that I have to give up? That was my false narrative when I started coming back to church was I thought it was about everything I had to stop doing. But really, what am I never going to experience? What will I miss out on? What are the joys that I will never get to be a part of if I'm not walking with Jesus, pursuing him, pursuing a good and beautiful life in Christ? And the answer is, that's how we forfeit a good and beautiful life. And so all these things are connected, right, is trying to develop habits that slow us down so that we are noticing the gifts that are around us, noticing with contentment, trying to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life because hurry is based in fear, right? It's not walking in peace with God. He says, the past might be written in stone, but our future is wet cement, pliable, smooth, totally impacted by the choices that we make now. If we considered Jesus' pace of life, and he said, come follow me, if we were actually going to follow him throughout a day, how fast would he actually be walking? How, what would his rhythm of life actually look like? And so if we genuinely try on a given day to follow Jesus, then I, I love what Smith says. He says, every day, Jesus says to each one of us, come and follow me. So Smith says, if we say yes to Jesus every day, and we say, okay, I'm going to follow you today, Jesus. I'm going to try and follow your rhythm. I'm going to try and listen to you. I'm going to try and see what you're doing. Okay, I'm going to actually try and just follow your lead today. He said, if we say yes, then we can be sure that a good and beautiful day is going to come. And then if you string a whole bunch of those days together, then you get months and years and decades. And then all of a sudden, you have a life. You know, a whole good and beautiful life. And he says, that life is destined to be an echo. It's a benediction of love. A benediction of love. I love that. A benediction means blessing. So it means that our lives have the potential to be a blessing of love to every person that we meet in this frightened and frazzled world, and to each other. So we don't get this right every day. I have needed all of you so much during this season. I have needed you all so much. Those of you who have said to me, you're doing great. You know, don't worry, it's fine. And anytime I've set a boundary or a limit or said, I can't do this, guess who has said to me, oh my gosh, I can't believe you didn't answer that email. Or I can't believe you didn't do that thing. 
How many people do you think have expressed disappointment with me? Not one. <laughs> Not one. Except you, yeah. I thought you were putting up your hand. I was like, you? Really? You're the guy? Zero. Not one. Right? It's my own idea of what I think is success. What I think looks like a good, being a good pastor is supposed to look like. So speaking of what a good pastor is supposed to look like, thank you, honey. Thank you. So for ministry time today, I feel like God has challenged me to do something that I have never done before in church. And it's really hard for me. But I am going to be obedient. And what God has challenged me to do is leave. Because my beautiful son, who has struggled through so many church services, has been invited to his very first birthday party today. And it started five minutes ago. And I informed the host that we would be coming late. But God has spoken to me this week about ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. And that today, I was to honor Pax. So I'm actually not allowed to talk to any of you. Peter and Jessica, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Peter and Jessica have been briefed. They are here. I think that God is probably speaking to you, and I want you to not bail on ministry time. But if ministry time looks different for you, or you are supposed to get with somebody and pray. Oh, see, look, I'm trying to fix it now. Look at this. I'm trying to control it all. I am supposed to leave and obey. I love you. Goodbye. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a whole lot I can say after that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say a benediction. Um, and then we'll, we'll be here. There'll be some prayer. Um, but, yeah, I mean, oh, Lord, help us to listen to what Joanna has said. Um, bless us and keep us. Uh, turn your face toward us. Um, give us grace for today, for this present moment, uh, as we go in peace. Oh, Lord, be our hope, our rest, and our non-anxious presence. Amen.